Amen. We are in Advent week two, and this week we look at the second part of Luke chapter one, the gospel according to Luke. If you are using one of those shiny new pew Bibles, it's page 804. By the way, if you don't own a Bible and you need a Bible, feel free to take one of those home. We ordered lots of extras. We want you to have a copy of God's word. So if you need that one, feel free to be our guest and take it. Last week, we looked at two narratives in Luke 1, the miraculous conceptions of the messenger, John, and the Messiah. Gabriel, the angel, he visits the elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he says they will have a long-awaited messenger and a son, and he visits then the young Jewish girl and says she will conceive. Remember there, if you're in Luke 1, verse 32 from last time, we read this, he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary responds like a model disciple there in verse 38. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And this morning, we're going to look at Luke 139 and following, and we're going to spend most of our time in what has been known as Mary's Magnificat. It's a Latin word because in the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, it's the first word there, as we're going to see, my soul magnifies the Lord. And so it's a song of praise. Now, keep in mind the historical context. God had been silent, seemingly absent for 400 years. And so Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, they all shared the same dream of the day that God would come back finally and redeem his people and bless the nations, just like he promised Abraham all those years back through a king in the line of David. And so they had prayed and they had searched the scriptures, soaking themselves, as we're going to see in the Psalms and in the prophetic writings. And the prayer of the prophets and the Psalms can be summed up as how long, O Lord, until you come and you bring forgiveness and you fulfill our hope. You bring fulfillment and reversal and victory over evil and rescue. When would despair give way to praise, O God? When would the gloomy clouds disperse 400 years? And it's poured forth here in Mary's Magnificat. But first, we have the visit between the cousins. Mary and Elizabeth there in verses 39 to 45. Let's turn to God's word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary heads to her cousin Elizabeth's house. She had to walk around 70 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And John hears the voice of Mary and he leaps in her womb. Footnote showing that he is a distinct person from Elizabeth. 
But this infant messenger, he already knows the significance of the Messiah. Just being in his presence makes him jump for joy. Last week, we looked at the prophecy of Malachi. We won't turn there this morning, but verses, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, when we saw where God was going to come back, he was going to redeem his people. Before he did that, he was going to send a messenger. He's going to send Elijah. And Elijah is going to cause many of the children of Israel to turn to the Lord. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And just a couple verses earlier in Malachi chapter 4, we read this. He prophesies that there were to be a day that would come that would be like the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. And they shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. John here is fulfilling prophecy even in the womb. John leaps in the presence of his Lord. He karate kicks Elizabeth in the ribs. You mamas know she probably had to go pee after that. And Elizabeth then receives a revelation. Prior to any communication here, Elizabeth declares, Mary is blessed and the fruit of her womb is blessed. This is not merely mutual congratulations. They both recognize the significance of Mary's son. And Elizabeth wonders, why am I so blessed that the mother of her Lord should visit her? Notice here, Elizabeth is actually the first person in history to confess Jesus is Lord. We often give credit to Peter, don't we? But here, Elizabeth calls Jesus her Lord even before he's born. Well, how could she know that? Prior to any communication, well, if she knows, we know because of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit in her life showed her. The Spirit gives her the ability to confess Jesus is Lord. By the way, that's no different from anyone who confesses Jesus is Lord. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one has the ability to know and confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. So if you're here and you confess Jesus is Lord, it's not because you were smart. Not because you were more holy than your unbelieving neighbor. It's because the Spirit of God worked in your life, removed the scales and helped you to see the glory of Jesus. The Spirit showed you his glory. That's what the Spirit does. John, remember, is filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. And his response to Christ is to leap for joy. Notice verse 41. Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth is, is filled with the Spirit, and the response then is to declare, declare Jesus is Lord. This is what the ministry of the Holy Spirit does. He loves to see Christ exalted. John is filled with the Spirit. He leaps at joy in the presence of Jesus. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and she exclaims the Lordship of Christ even before he is born. A lot of churches try to focus on the Spirit. And make much of the Holy Spirit. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus. The Spirit moves people to rejoice at Jesus. Here's how Jesus himself put it about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. He said, when the Spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. The Spirit exists to exalt the Son. So here this church, a church that is filled with the Spirit, is centered on Jesus Christ, not the Spirit. The Spirit's ministry is to move us towards Christ-centeredness. The Spirit's ministry is to move us to be able to say and to see and to savor the glory of Jesus, just like he does here with John and his mama. And what a tremendous moment in history we have here. Both Elizabeth and Mary shared the dream of what all the prophets said would come true. One day Israel's God would send a messenger and would deliver his people and bring the kingdom and bless the nation through the family of Abraham. It's a scene of joy, and then it moves us to Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, in verses 46 to 56. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What is the right response to the promises of God? We honor him. We exalt him. We glorify him. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. All that she is exalts his name. This word here for magnify, it's actually a pretty rare word. Luke uses it in Acts in one place to to say that the word is translated extol. My soul extols. The Lord. And so, in God, in response to God's promises and God's faithfulness, we extol the Lord. And we extol Him on Sunday mornings, right? We praise Him with song. We praise His name in song. We join David, who says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. But Mary's not in a church service, is she? No, we magnify Him, we extol Him with all that we are. Worship is all of life. This word can also be translated to hold in high esteem. What is our response to who God is, his faithfulness and his promises? We hold him in high esteem. And it makes a difference in the way we live, the way we worship corporately, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we spend our time, the way we work, the way we treat our spouse, the way we parent, the way we spend our resources, the way we spend our free time, everything. We're called to extol him, to hold him in high esteem with everything that we are. We magnify the Lord in all of life. It's actually the same word the Apostle Paul uses in Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be magnified honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The goal here is that Christ be magnified, exalted, glorified. Friends, this is why you exist, that you too might magnify the Lord in all of life. But that's not the only response. Another response to the goodness and faithfulness of God is joy. She says, I magnify God my Savior, but also says my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. By the way, notice here, Mary needs a Savior too. Mary's not a co-Savior. Mary's not a co-Redeemer. She is a grateful recipient of grace. She is not a dispenser of grace. She is an example of faith. She is not an object of faith. And she's filled with joy in the Lord. I rejoice in God my Savior. 
We rejoice because God's at work. He's doing what he promised to do. When God's at work, the response should be joy. That's what Gabriel told Zechariah last week, right? Look at chapter 1, verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Christianity is a religion of joy, true joy, joy that lasts, the joy that goes beyond our circumstances, that's rooted and grounded in God. It's the joy of having purpose, of fellowship with the triune God, the joy of living lives that matter, not only for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but for eternity. The joy of self-giving love, the joy of sins forgiven, the joy of clean consciences, the joy of living the life the way our creator intended us to live. Psalm 1, blessed. Blessed is really a good way to think about it is flourishing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of scoffers, nor sits in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And I love the imagery that comes next. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The blessed life is a life centered on God, where we magnify him and find joy. And the two are not at odds. Honoring God and finding joy are actually what we were made for. We magnify the Lord and thereby find joy in it. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. First question, what is the chief end of man? What's the main thing, chief end, that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever? And those two go together. John Piper's made it famous by saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We find true satisfaction and joy when we live lives that are honoring to him. And God gets more glory, right? If we just do our duty, grit our teeth and, and get white knuckled into our duty, that does bring God some glory. That's better than disobedience. But what about when you're doing your duty out of delight? God receives even more honor and we receive true joy and true satisfaction. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God, my Savior. And then next, Mary gives us the reasons why she honors God and finds joy in him. Is verse 48. For, because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She magnifies and rejoices in God because he looked on the humble estate of his servant. God shows favor to the lowly. And she magnifies and rejoices because God's looked on her, given her grace, and all generations will call her blessed. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Gives God glory, not because of anything Mary's done, but because of what God has done. God is the focus here. There's no Mariolatry here or anywhere else in Scripture. No, but Mary is steeped in the promises of God. She is steeped in the Psalms as she sings. Our God is the mighty one. Mighty is he. That's what Gabriel said back in verse 37. It says, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
Our God is the mighty one. He is the king of glory, the Lord, strong and mighty. He is mighty in splendor and majesty. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. Holy is his name. God is the mighty one and he is the holy one. Psalm 99 Verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Psalm 111, verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. He's a mighty God. He is a holy God. But as Mary already saying, he also looks on the lowly. He's high and exalted, but he looks upon the humble estate of his servants. Or as the prophet Isaiah put it, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that good news? You know who God is looking for? He's high and lifted up. You know who he's looking for? The lowly. Not the cleaned up. Not those who have it all together, but those who know that they don't. Those who know they're not okay. The humble. The marginalized, the downtrodden, the contrite. You know what the one qualification for salvation is? It's to know you don't qualify. That's what contrite means. Do you know you need a Savior in here this morning? You can have him. You can have him right here, right now. You just call out to him, confess your sins, and ask for the forgiveness of sins. He will save you. And if you do that, next step is to go public in believer's baptism. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy is his commitment not to give us what we deserve. He holds back what we deserve, what we have earned, namely judgment and condemnation. This word is often used in the Old Testament to refer to God's faithfulness and especially God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. In fact, we get the sense of that in the next section there in chapter 1, verse 72. Zechariah sings to show the mercy, there's that word, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant forever. His faithfulness to his gracious promise, that's his mercy. But notice here, his mercy is not for everyone. It's only for those who fear him. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I wonder this morning, do you land in that camp? Do you fear the Lord? It's really a missing character quality today because most visions and views of God set forth leave no room for fear or for reverence. He's just the man upstairs. Don't call God that. He's just the divine sky fairy, the big genie in the bottle who exists to grant our every wish and make sure we have our best life now. Not in Scripture. In Scripture, God is awesome in the true sense of the word, deserving all. He is holy righteous, all-powerful, to be feared, not in the sense of dreading him, but really the best way to think about the fear of the Lord is we fear displeasing him. That's what it means to fear him. We fear dishonoring him. 
And the fear of the Lord is a big theme in the Bible and especially for Luke and his gospel. And later on in the parable of the persistent widow, the judge is described as one who didn't fear God. That's how he's described. Not as an unbeliever, not as a pagan. He's one who didn't fear God. He describes Cornelius, Luke does later, as a devout man who fears God. That's how he's described. So what is a Christian? One way of saying a Christian is one who fears God. How do we know who fears God? By the way we live. Because we fear disobeying him. We fear displeasing him. We keep his commandments. We want to see him honored in all of life, right? Like Mary magnified in every moment. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. This mighty one has shown strength. He has a mighty arm, strong in his hand. Psalm 118 says, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Here Mary is alluding to that great act of salvation in the Old Testament. Often when you hear about the strong arm of the Lord, he's talking about his great act of deliverance. And the greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament is from the book of Exodus. Let me read from Exodus chapter 6. Mary is steeped in God's word. Exodus chapter 6 verse 1 says, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. We're skipping down to Exodus 6, verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. Just notice the emphasis on who's going to get this done. This is our God. He says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God has done it once. He will do it again. He has shown his strength through his arm. He will do it again. In fact, flip over to Luke chapter 9. Here we have the transfiguration and notice Luke 9 verse 31. Jesus is with Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. ESV has a footnote for departure. If you look down, number one, Greek, Exodus. Moses and Elijah and the Son of God are speaking about the Exodus that he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What did Jesus accomplish at Jerusalem? The cross. 
So all that the prophets looked forward to, this new exodus that would come when God showed his strong arm again would be accomplished at Jerusalem through the cross where we're freed. Just like Israel of old, we're not freed from Egypt, we're not freed from Babylon, not even freed from Rome, but the enemies behind them, Satan, sin, and death. And like the exodus of old, he comes and when he brings salvation, he brings salvation through judgments. It's the way he always works. Here we see Mary says, God has scattered the proud. Those who think too highly of themselves often think too little of God, which is why he's opposed to them. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This isn't the point of the passage, but just notice it's interesting that your heart has thoughts. Scatters them in the thoughts of their hearts. In the Bible, the heart is the center of the personality. It's the center of our personhood. We tend to think of different things, but in the Bible, it's the mind, it's the will, it's the affections, emotions, it's all of it. And so our hearts are very important. Proverbs chapter 4 says, guard your heart, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. It has thoughts. You know, secular psychology tends to portray the human as totally passive, often victims, not in the Bible. In the Bible, our hearts are active. It has thoughts. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says that the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so God scatters the proud with the thoughts of their heart. And Mary's song here is filled with allusions and echoes to Hannah's song that we just read a moment ago. Like Hannah, the pregnancy was unexpected and a son would be born with a special role in God's saving purposes. Let me read again just a few verses from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verses 4 and 5 say this, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. God brings down the mighty, but exalts the lowly. It's just the way God works, right? Just think about how he's worked historically. Think about Abram and Sarah. They're moon worshipers, elderly couple. God calls them out of darkness into light and promises to build a nation out of them, build a people around this elderly moon-worshiping couple. Moses is a stuttering murderer. God lifts him up, raises him up, and delivers his people through them. Think about David. He's a shrimpy shepherd boy. God raises him up as king. Zechariah and Elizabeth, obscure, advanced in years. Mary, young Jewish girl, very low on the social status scale. God loves to overturn expected human values and conventions. Human society has always said bigger is better, might is right. We live in a celebrity TMZ culture, but as we read, not by might shall a man prevail. God scatters the exalted and exalts the lowly and the poor. That's who God calls. God goes after the C team. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read it. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses the C team and works through the C team so that he might get all the glory. He loves to show his power, right? 2 Corinthians 12, through weakness. Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom through an old woman and a virgin. And then he goes to establish his rule, not by wearing a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns. And the values of his kingdom are not what the world expects. The world says the rich and the powerful are blessed. This king says blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He doesn't invite the rich and the well-to-do to to his banquet. Instead, he invites the poor and the crippled and the lame. As the psalmist says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He's the God of the underdog. Don't we all love underdog stories? That's why Rocky is the greatest movie ever made. In fact, the greatest eight movies now that have ever been made. And he didn't die off in Creed II, so it's going to be nine in a year or two. That's why we like the shows like American Idol where you have like the elderly lady who's not attractive in any way and overweight and comes out and she just kills it and everybody goes crazy. We love those stories, right? We love to see the reversal of fortunes. And that's what the kingdom of Christ brings, the reversal of fortunes. Brings a new scale of values. Old social divisions that the world cares about matter not in this kingdom. The first or last, the last or first. In this kingdom, one descends into greatness. Says he fills the hungry with good things. Later, he says, blessed are the hungry, for they shall be satisfied. Again, that's really the only qualification for the kingdom. Are you hungry? Notice the kind of person here God is for in these verses. Is it the polished and the worthy and the wealthy? No. It's those who fear him. It's the humble. It's the hungry. It's the needy. Are you broke this morning? You have just the right amounts. The prophet Isaiah says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The one to whom the Lord will look is he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. Leave your swagger at the door of this kingdom. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. There's that word again. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The God of Israel has helped his people. Here we have the beginnings of the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. This is another illusion. I've only covered about a third of the illusions here. One of them is to Isaiah 41. And he says, you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took. And this word for took is the same word that Luke uses for help took you from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corner saying, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Mary prays God has helped his people. He's helped because he remembered his mercy. 
which he promised to the fathers, to the patriarchs, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to bring land and offspring and blessing. And through that family to bless the nations. God is at work. He's keeping his promise. And he's keeping his promise to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And you know who the offspring of Abraham is. If you're a parent, you sing it to your kids. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. So are you if we've trusted in Christ. That's what Galatians 3.29 says. If you are of Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Jesus defines his people around himself. That's why John starts his gospel saying Jesus came to his own people. His own people didn't receive him. But to any who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God or born, not by blood, not by natural descent, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but of God. Our God is mighty and he's merciful. He is powerful and he keeps his covenants. What a combination is that? He is mighty and he is trustworthy. Those two truths ought to be like kryptonite to things like worry and anxiety and depression. He is able and he's for you. He is strong and he is faithful. So you can cast your cares upon him. He loves you. So here we have God saving the world through the womb of a young woman. And you know what? This was always his plan. Genesis 1, man and a woman are created. Genesis 3, it all goes south. They're expelled from the garden. We have what we call the fall. And in Genesis chapter 3.15, a verse I hope you know. Theologians call it the proto-euangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. And it says that God will, through an offspring of the woman, crush the head of the serpents. A baby will be born. Later we learn from the prophet Isaiah, he will be Emmanuel, God with us. He will once and for all defeat evil, and this is the beginning. That's what Advent is about. The arrival of the beginning of the offspring who will once and for all put away evil. He's made good on his promises. We can trust that he will continue to.